This is the bit where we test the levels, and I thought it was going to be great this week because they've just released the best jokes from uh, the Edinburgh Fringe, mm-hmm. allegedly, and most of them are rubbish. Ivo Graham has come up with quite a good one because he, he's Ivo Graham is a posh boy. You know that you've seen him. He and went to York Uni there, didn't he? No, he went to either Cambridge or Oxford. Oh, did he? I thought that he was one of the ones who was one of these posh boys who then didn't go to... No. Who, like, refused an offer to Oxford or Cambridge. Who did that? A comedian? Pretty sure Ivo went to Oxford or Cambridge, but you might be right. No, 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 probably not. I I thought you'd told me that, so if you don't think that's right, then I'm wrong. However, his uh, Edinburgh joke was, I've got an Eton-themed... Because he definitely went to Eton. Mm. So he says he's got an Eton theme to his advent calendar, where all the doors are opened uh, for me by my dad's contacts. (laughs) That is really good. That's good. But the other joke's not that great. A, A thesaurus, this is Ross Smith who's quite a well-known stand-up, I think. He says, a thesaurus is great. There's no other word for it. (laughs) Olaf Falafel, who we've featured before in this uh, highly prestigious Testing the Levels spot, Olaf Falafel came up with his joke was, I keep randomly shouting out broccoli and cauliflower. I think I might have florets. And that's pretty decent, I think. Yeah, well, there's been a you know oh, a bit so of a backlash against it a bit because of, backlash of yeah. the uh, Tourette's Society. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tourette's is one of those things that people continue to sort of take the piss out of when it is a mental illness. And mm. it's, it's, it's not just swearing, is it? It's, no, no. It's, it's, it's a lot of it is like um, jitters or um, twitches and stuff. Mm. Billie Eilish has Tourette's. Really? She had a bit, like a twitch or something. So one of my uh, Twitter people, one of my what you call cronies, said mm-hmm. to me, they've asked me to do some charity work for the brittle bone syndrome people. And the guys pay me uh, £25 an hour and I get weekends off. I snapped his hand off, <laughs> which is sort of the same thing you would get. But, like, I don't think Tourette's is something that like truly does affect people and is really difficult to overcome a lot of times, mm. whereas brittle bones That's, is yeah. not. Right. Also, so barely anyone... The brittle bone people, they're okay. They're also, who, who has brittle bones anymore? Well, like old people, people with brittle bone syndrome. Oh, old people, so that's okay. No, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> it's like not... A lot of people used to have brittle bone syndrome, but I, don't, I think... Hasn't that, like, sort of been a bit one of those things like TB? Possibly. Possibly. I have no people idea. People are rickets. Yeah. People just don't have rickets as much anymore. Mm. So there was a teacher at my school who was the... Um, I don't know what he did. He's like, maybe the caretaker or something. And he had rickets. He went on a school trip with us. Really? Mm-hmm. It's, what, what, what exactly is rickets? That's sort of like it's a where your arms, your, wait, not, not your arms, your legs, your other arms, your <laughs> bottom arms. Um, they, I'm doing a gesture. Mm. It's like they curve. They curve, yeah. They curve outwards. Good, we've dealt with rickets. You've got a lot going on in your life at the moment, a hell of a lot, because you've had your A-level results, which yeah. I did put on Twitter, not in a... Oh, did you? I didn't even see. Yes, well, I didn't... I, I knew you wouldn't want me to sort of do the whole proud dad No, bit. I hate that. Yeah, so do I. So annoying. People on Facebook, oh, haven't they done well and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I didn't do any of that, but I did put a, a mention just for people. Uh, I was asked, basically, somebody tweeted and said, what was Ruth's A-level results? So I put them on Twitter. You put my actual, what I got? Two A's and a B. Yeah, I know, but I didn't want you to put what I actually got on Twitter. What did you, oh, did you want me to put three A stars? No, I didn't know. Not what, I didn't mean what I actually got. You could have just been like, oh, she did fine. 
Oh, no, they wanted... Well, people asked, what what did you get? And you got two A's and a B, so well Yeesh. done. Because A star is sort of showing off a bit, isn't it? Exactly. Isn't it? Like, I don't... You know. Who needs A stars? Who? You know? uh, who needs A levels? Because in a few years' time... Nobody... That's what Jeremy Clarkson, he always says, I got... A C and two U's, look at me now. Yeah, that's what he always does. Well, there was tweet a lot like of that on A level result day, and that's worse. That's that's the worst. It's also completely brain. stupid. Like, no one's going to feel better by Jeremy Clarkson saying, Look at my mansion, and I got this. Mm. So, uh, you got your A level results, they were fine, they were more or less what you wanted, but you'd already got an unconditional offer anyway. So, even if you'd have failed them, you'd have um, had your university place. You're going to Leeds Fest tomorrow? Yes. Uh, I'm going for the weekend, so to see lots of people. I'm really excited to see Slow Tie. And we played them on the podcast. Yeah. Mm. Glastonbury looks amazing. Mm. Like, compared to the amount of people that are there. Miley Cyrus was at Glastonbury. Glastonbury sort of seems, seems to me to be less for hardcore musos than the Leeds Fest. Leeds Fest... I Leeds feel like Leeds Fest is more for uh, if, you want, if you're local and you want a big party, whereas Glastonbury seems like if you want a proper festival. What was Do you it? know what I mean? No, what, what I think, if ABBA were to reform, they would play Glastonbury. They would be the main act yeah. at Glastonbury, whereas they wouldn't be at Leeds Fest or Reading Fest. Because no. their, their history is they were rock festivals originally. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of people, it's within sort of the last four years that there's been more kind of rap and hip-hop and more mainstream stuff. And there was quite a lot of like backlash last year from people who've been going for years and years, saying it's got too mainstream, you know, because like Dua Lipa was there last year, you can't get more mainstream than Dua Lipa. And a lot of people were saying you've sort of kind of sold out for yeah, what people want. But bands like in Muse fairness, and the, Kasabian, U2, that's what Yeah, because Muse yeah. were there um, one year. But then, like, Kings of Leon were there last year and they were awful. Like, I cannot describe how boring... I hope Kings of Leon aren't listening, but they were so boring. Mm. Do you know, and they're regular subscribers <laughs> to the podcast, Kings of Leon, they absolutely love it. But the, the main, like, audience for them are, like, 16 to sort of... 19 year olds so why would they not be playing stuff that mm. you know you've got i think you've got to cater to, to an audience you can't just keep everything the same because that's the way it was mm. this unconditional offer that you've got at york university is quite controversial labor have come out with their plans if they were to get into government students would apply to university only after receiving their a-level results under labor proposals the party said that it would abolish the system of predicted a-level grades determining university offers and the summer clearing scramble which some of your friends must be involved in mm. uh, the move would also end unconditional offers in which universities offer places to students with no a-level grades required head teachers have said that these are damaging education uh, angela rayner the shadow education they said predicted grades were quotes wrong in the vast majority of cases and that disadvantaged students in particular lost out under the system yeah. so in, so that people... sounded to me fully sensible that sounded to me as it is a... but then also how there's just not enough time between when you get your results and when you go to university to find to it, to, 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 for everyone to have university places and yeah. stuff like. So is that impractical I don't know. what they're saying? Because it uh, does maybe, sound yeah. Sensible. I mean, I don't know how how it would work, but maybe. You know but, what? I would also say I don't really care anymore. <laughs> no, of course you don't. You've got a place. Yeah. But I mean, um, you were disappointed with some of your predicted grades because I went to that. Oh parents no! Evening in the in got... the end, I wasn't because I thought I was going to get pre- well. In the in the end, I got 
I would have got predicted exactly what I got so they were probably mm. right but I said that I th- think I could get an A in English which I didn't I got a B um, and they said so they were right and you were wrong really. oh yeah yeah entirely yeah. but I wanted three years to be able to apply to wherever I wanted to go and the unconditional offer thing do you think that's right or wrong I mean I it's not unconditional you working you can't no, work but I do think the unconditional offer thing is kind of wrong but they do it for like so I had three out of five of my offers were unconditionals because I was doing languages and if you're doing a course that not many people do and they really want to get people into they offer you unconditionals so to make sure you go yeah. Because the universities can't fill the places. Now, it means that uh, we only have uh, a few weeks left with you living in our house. Like six. About six weeks left, because uh, you go at the end of September, don't you, to yeah. university. I'm looking at it with trepidation because it's uh, the first time we'll have had an empty house. So we've empty nest. Uh, we are empty nesters. However, uh, I read this piece by the science correspondent at the Times, and it says, Empty nesters rejoice. Scientists have found that having children makes you happier but only after they've left home. Parenthood can involve less free time, less rest. And oh, come no. Are you just sort of agreeing with the time of science correspondent? Yeah. Uh, parenthood can involve less free time, less rest and less money to spare. And previous research has shown that those without children tended to be happier. Now, however, a large study has indicated that parents with grown-up offspring who've moved out of the family home mm. are more contented. The, uh, the headline was, children really do make you happier but only after they've gone. It was German researchers. But then the stuff they're saying that makes you unhappy doesn't... Like, I think there's two levels to happiness. There's, like, general happiness as in sort of being well-rested and having enough money and all that kind of stuff. But then your overall sort of fulfilment in life, having little kids, surely that makes you happier. Well, I'm trying to think back. I, uh... Do you know what I mean? Like, obviously there's a lack of rest and you've not been able to go out all the time and you can't go on benders or whatever. But the overall fulfilment for having raised children, if you want them, I'm not saying that everyone should want children, but I don't think that those things make you less happy. Maybe make you less happy in a day-to-day thing if you're tired and frustrated, but not less fulfilled. Well, the Germans disagree with you. Well, what do the Germans know? Uh, German researchers analysed questionnaires from uh, 55,000 respondents uh, aged 50 or above from 16 European countries. I know better. I've not had kids. No, well, precisely. I was one, though. Well, you were, and so was I. Uh, 16 European countries were uh, questioned on this, and they were asked about mental health, sense of well-being, family and social life. Those with children tend to be more content, but only if those children had moved out. Having them um, at home was linked to a lower quality of life. Yeah, quality of life, but I don't think quality of life necessarily links I'm, directly to happiness. Yeah, Well, I'm, I'm with you on that, for a start, and what we're going to talk about when you're gone. We'll talk about whether you phoned or not. Whether I phoned or not. And the answer is always no, she's not phoned. No, you're not great really, on, the, on the phone. I'm rubbish. Yeah. I do, I ring to make make sure you know I'm okay, but sometimes I'll just text saying I'll be home. Mm, sometimes. You know, you said, you know, you get children at home, you can't go out on a bender. Well, we do, because in my uh, guide to bad parenting, that's one of the uh, one of the prime things that you do. Oh, you go yeah. out? Go out on a bender. Because if you're not there, you don't know that we're going out on a bender. Yeah, true. Is, this, is that why you're so keen on me, like, going out and staying at friends' houses? Is this mm. because you and mum are out all the time? Let's have another pint. I 
wonder if you've ever read The Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank. Did you ever read it? Yeah, of course I've read it. Does every child... Did did you do it at school? No, no, I read it at home. Yeah, I just have it at home. Um, I've read it a couple of times, actually. I read it mainly because I was such a massive fan of Jacqueline Wilson. You know, I completely idolised her. Mm. And in her... Um, diary. Her, um, it's called My Secret Diary. Yes, that's right. um, she talks about how she absolutely adored the diary of Anne Frank, and she had um, a picture of Anne Frank like on her bedside table, and she used to read it over and over and over again. So then, just after I'd read that, I read the diary of a young girl. So you would have read it when she, when you were about the age that she was. What, yeah, I 13, I, I read it. I think when I was about twelve. Yeah, and she'd have been about thirteen or fourteen. Yeah. I think when she when she I read wrote it when it. I was just slightly younger than when she wrote it. But mm. yeah, what what did you make of it? What did you take from it? Oh, I thought it was beautiful and so sad. I've read it, so when I read it when I was 12, um, I thought, oh, yeah, right, okay. And I, but I don't think I really appreciated it as much. And then I read it when I was about 15 or 16, and I really appreciated it a lot more then. Firstly, because I knew a lot more about the Holocaust. And also, I've appreciated what a brilliant writer she was as well. Yes. Which is the unbelievable thing. So I've read the um, Malala Yousafzai, who is a like an unbelievable girl and she um, won the Nobel Peace Prize and is amazing. What's her book called? Uh, her book is called I Am Malala That's and right. so I read that one as well and as much as it was a fantastic story what and it got kind of compared a bit to the which I don't think you should have compared it but it did at the time um, I think what you saw in hers was that she wasn't as a natural writer in the way that Anne Frank was. Yeah, because Anne Frank wrote other, other stuff as well. Um, the only reason I know all about this and I'm asking about this is there's a new book out called uh, The Collected Works uh, of Anne Frank, which is reviewed in this week's Times Literary Supplement. Not that I ever buy the Times Literary Supplement, but now there's one of the few perks of uh, us moving buildings at Talk Radio is that we're right next door. The office next door is the uh, is the office of the Times Literary Supplement. Mm. They're on the same floor as us. I suspect that was the the worst floor you could get put on, right next to Talk Radio. So you've got Talk Radio, people shouting all the time and talking nonsense, and then people very quietly uh, at their desks at the Times Literary Supplement, you know, reviewing books. But they're review the uh, the Anne Frank book here wait they review the, what, so wait there's a new book coming out that's the collected works what what other stuff has it got in it well what it's got in it is other bits of essays and things that she wrote oh uh, right as well as the as I well, didn't know there was anything else yeah she did write other stuff it's looking at Anne Frank as a writer mm. and it's sort of saying that the message that people take from Anne Frank is sort of wrong what they're saying is that they people take this uplift because it was made into a film and before that it was a play it was a stage mm. play it was yeah a stage I, play I went that, to see the play oh did you yeah yeah and it's the stage play that made it very famous yeah know, I, mean, like the book. I went to see it because um when i did i did i was in a production of annie when i was a kid i always make you laugh when i say when i was a kid because you say you're still a kid <laughs> but when i was a little kid the the woman who played miss hannigan mm. played anne frank's mum Mm. Well, people. What they're saying in this in this article is that uh, people take the wrong message from because it was a stage play and it was a Hollywood film. That they've taken the the end of the book to be, uh, which is the end of the play, to be an uplifting message. I didn't find it uplifting. The book. Didn't you? No. Well, you read it the right way. Then it says, in spite of everything, this was the last words, weren't they? In spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. Thus, the story that would end in Anne's squalor death was given an uplifting Hollywood ending so it's sort of like given 
an uplifting ending. But a little bit before that, she has a very much darker view of uh, humanity. Uh, I don't believe the war is simply the work of politicians or capitalists. Oh no, the common man is every bit as guilty. Mm. Um, I think you can, I think both of those things can be true. So, mm-hmm. do you know, I, I think it can be both despairing and uplifting at the same time. I think that the thing those things can coexist. But I also think that that's what people forget when they're, as they're reading it is that she's a teenage girl, and I think that when you're a teenager, you can believe lots of things all at once because mm-hmm. you you're discovering what your worldview is, and that's why it's so hopeless. Is that she never did get to decide what she thought of the world? See, I think the other thing it's saying in this review is that she's been made into a saint because uh, mm. the Jew, oh. Jews don't have saints, but the Mormons have uh, adopted her and she's been made... There are other... If you go sort of, to the Anne Frank Museum, the Anne Frank House um, mm. in Amsterdam, which I really wanted to go to, and I went with Mum. It's no wonder the Nazis found her because there's signs <laughs> all over Amsterdam. Everywhere, Anne Frank House. Anne Frank House, very easy to find. They, they do... There was one bit that I was like, oh, that is... Because I kind of felt it was sort of a bit weird. I, I always find these things with Holocaust memorials and um, mm. the museums. Yeah. I think we've they talked don't about sit, this. They don't sit right with no. me at all. Um, but when I went to see it, the, one of the things, and people try and ignore it, is that she had this really like flirty relationship with this the boy. Mm. I can't remember what his name was no, now. No, it's in here um, like Yeah, this, this uh, something like Lancelot. It's something Dutch. Um <laughs> <laughs> she had this really like flirty with relationship with her, and one of the diaries that and they and I th- they cut out a lot of the stuff where she's talking about like sex and stuff. But she was f- like thirteen or fourteen. That's mm. that is it, part of it, and it's part of when people cut that out is erasing her as a real person. Mm. I think one of the really interesting things about it is that people th- uh, romanticize this idea of just this like little found diary and how amazing it was and stuff. But she, w- they listened to a pirate ra- radio station when they were in the attic. Well, and, listen to the BBC. Yeah, or the BBC or whatever. And the BBC said, if you're writing, a, if you're hiding somewhere and write a diary, keep the diary, go back through it because there'll be will want to publish these diaries afterwards and she heard it and she went back through old entries of her diary and made them better she edited she was her own editor and i think that makes it an even more brilliant story is that she was aware of it and she knew that she wanted she knew what she had to say was but it was ages before it was published in the 50s before yeah yeah because her dad found it he found well he was given it by meep yes meep i always think is the the hero of the story Mm. it's one of the helpers who who kept it yeah. That's a fantastic story. We very rarely talk about Brexit, but you said you have I uh, have a some piece of stuff about Brexit. I read an interesting article on the in the Guardian. Guardian, obviously. Obviously, because it's free. And I'm <laughs> not gonna pay for my press. There's just this basically I read it and I was like, gosh, I really don't do not know what I think about that. Um, so he was basically saying... The Guardian normally tell you what to think, because you normally come here with a full set of Guardian attitudes. We did talk about this last week, the fact that because you get all your information off the Guardian, and you do that because it's free for no other reason, uh, the Guardian is now moulding a generation mm. of young minds. I also do it because their website is really user-friendly. Mm, yeah, precisely. Which is well done there. Yeah. Um, well, you see, uh, the mail, that's free, but it's uh, the website... The website's crap. Yeah. It's, it's so difficult to navigate. Yes, it is. It Whereas is. the Guardian is all nice colours as well. Mm, lovely. So, uh, um, um, so this guy, and he was talking about how he thinks that it's already 
we've already screwed everything up basically mm. and that there's no way to go back from it and that everyone is becoming more and more hopeless and the people who were really anti-Brexit and were saying that there's a way out that there's no way out and it's just sad um, and so he compares it a bit to um, these things that Lyndon Johnson said. He said, I don't think it's worth fighting for and I don't think we can get out. It's the biggest damn mess. That's what Lyndon Johnson said about the Vietnam. Vietnam War? No. Yeah, the Vietnam War. Yeah, the Vietnam that's War. That's exactly what Lyndon Johnson said about the Vietnam War. But I think that's way, way and then over he the says, top to compare. No, no, here's, well, here's what he says. He says, Brexit is not a military military atrocity and there is no moral equivalence implied by comparison with vietnam still i sense that our incumbent johnson is also trapped in the midway point of a longer tragedy the premise of, of which are unable to grasp that perspective will always elude the prime minister because he adheres to the 19th century view that history is made by great men and he's enough of a narcissist to count himself among them um, I think that is completely true. I think that Boris Johnson does think that history is made by great men and that's why he idolises well, Churchill so much. Yeah. And he, be- he believes in this view that history is made by single men and, you know... And they, all all they, married men, yeah. Pardon? All married men, not just single men. Oh, <laughs> I didn't get what you were on about then at all. Went right over my head. Uh, that he believes that history and these these romantic moments of decisions and whatever, and I don't think that's true at all. But I think that this article, I was like, it's really frustrating to read because it's, again, this kind of, like, catastrophic thinking of we're at this tragedy point. And I was like, I don't I don't think I agree. No, well, we don't know. That's, yeah, that's the problem. But it could be, it could, this is the thing, we could be living in this moment that people read about in history books and they'll they'll look back on it and kids will study it and think, oh my God, how did they allow this to happen? Why didn't someone stop it? Mm. It could be just as easily this awful tragedy as it could be actually not that important. Yeah. It seemed to me that what Theresa May proposed was the best possible deal and wasn't wasn't a half bad deal. We proposed quite a substantial divorce settlement, but Mm. that divorce settlement would be paid and then we wouldn't have to pay into the EU every year. About the kids, EU every year, which, you know, which will, in theory, it would have helped the kids because by the time the economic, you know, by the time their mums and dads' shitstorm was over Mm. and their businesses had suffered and all that, we would then get to the point where we weren't, we paid the divorce bill and we weren't paying in it every year to the EU, which seemed to be one of the, there were two things that people objected to there were there were outright racists who just didn't like foreigners and then there were all xenophobes if you like and then there were people who thought well we we pay too much into the EU mm. and we're just keeping this huge bureaucracy with the big parliaments yeah. in Strasbourg and Brussels going why should we be paying into that you can see them you can see, you the, see the logic on a very yeah. simple on a very simple level so Theresa May's deal seemed to sort of uh, solve that and everything that Labour were, were, were whinging on about the reasons they didn't like the deal it didn't take care of workers rights mm. we would get chlorinated chicken from the from America your health the environment all that sort of stuff it was all in there it was all in Theresa May's deal yeah so I think they shot the parliament shot them and we should be ashamed of our MPs so they shot themselves in the foot by not accepting that deal which was probably about the best we could get yeah so he goes on to say zoom out a little uh, still further and Brexit could look like the prelude to a wider unravelling if the European project is rattled by financial crisis and fractured by vandalistic nationalism had to look up vandalistic obviously well vandals yeah that's what I meant but I mean, you've heard Bob I Dylan, got the, the vandals took the handles. <laughs> the debate will be whether Britain was wise to get out when it did. So he he's making the argument that the EU is falling apart anyway, which was what 
a lot of people said mm. at the time of Brexit was that the EU's going to, you know, Absolutely. France don't want to be in the EU if we leave. That all the sense it's be the ending. Italy definitely doesn't yeah. want to be in the EU. So it was wise to get out when it did, or criminal in failing to stay at the critical jun- juncture. One side will celebrate Brexit as a heroic leap from the fire escape. The other will deplore it as the arsonist spark that ignited an inferno. Bit of music? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Should we start with mine? Yeah. Well, let's have a listen to it and see if you recognise the singer. A bottle of white A bottle of red Perhaps a bottle of rosé instead Get a table near the street In our old familiar place you and I face to face. Mm-hmm. A bottle of red. I do, I do. Uh, not, it's not Paul McCartney. No, it's not. No, Paul McCartney. wait. Um, not John Lennon. Oh, it's not. It's not. None of the Beatles. It is not. No, but it, the Beatles I know whatsoever. who it is. Elton John. No, but you're in the very much in the right ballpark. Oh, I know who it is. The there, there was a period in the. Can you give me a clue. Yes, I will. I recognise his voice, loads. Right. Well, there was a period in the mid to late seventies, early eighties, when that sort of singer song. Billy Joel. Correct. Yes. Billy Joel. Well I knew done. it. I could hear because I love that. Um, She's always a woman. I love that song. Mm. And I could hear that when he was singing that. And moving out today like that. Yeah. Well, uh, Billy Joel... Oh, yes. Yeah, well done. Um, <laughs> but you should put that on your playlist. You will absolutely love it. It's called Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. It was on a, a fantastic LP called The Stranger. And he was on, the other night, he was on the Stephen Colbert late show in, in America. You know, it's a chat show. Is it not just and Colbert? Colbert. Oh, I've been saying Colbert all over town. Have you? Well, you can start saying Colbert now. Colbert. That's what he calls himself. Mm. Um, so he was on that um, Stephen Colbert Late Show, mm. and uh, he was asked to pick the top five Billy Joel songs, as chosen by Billy Joel, and that was his top song. So wow. definitely put that on your playlist. Because I, I noticed when I was playing Moving Out, uh, St Anthony's song, you were very impressed. Yeah, I liked Joel. it. Yeah, the interesting thing was at, at the time. I um, love that she's always a woman. Yeah, well, you mentioned even though it's a bit. You mentioned Elton John, who was in the same sort of area as piano playing singer songwriters as uh, Billy Joel. Mm-hmm. Also in that area was Barry Manilow. Who? Oh, the, Barry Manilow, excellent. Love well, Barry Manilow. Dear. Yeah, really, you're not just saying to be satirical. Well, the thing about Barry Manilow is when he started exactly the same time as Billy Joel, and when the two of them started, they were comparable. Barry Manilow wasn't Mm. considered to be this this sort of camp, jokey type thing. Well, the thing is, Uh, though, with people like Billy Joel and Barry Barry Manilow, that they're still popular today because music and passion is always in fashion. I was cooking that one up. You've been cooking that up, have mm-hmm. you? Uh, and we didn't do any preparation for this beforehand, as people will know. So, yeah, Billy Joel, anyway, born in the Bronx, New York City. Uh, and I know we always find it amusing when uh, Americans try and do an English accent. Yes. Well, Billy Joel, I'm going to play you this bit, because uh, this is from the Colbert show the other mm-hmm. night, right? And Billy Joel was talking about the first gig he went, or the first gig he was aware of, that he went to, which was Jimi Hendrix was playing New York in the 60s. Wow. And he got him without a ticket, and this is him talking... That's a pretty good first gig. (laughs) Yes, this is him talking about it. Oh, that's not it. Uh, (laughs) This is him talking about it. We didn't have tickets. It was was with another guy who was in my band, 
and we snuck in by putting cables, holding cables, and uh, you know, it's talking with English accents, airs out English accents. Jimmy's got to get his cables, he's going to be really pissed off. So we got to get to, we got to get to the stage, and I kind of bullcrap my way up to the stage, and I uh, was talking with an English accent to all the promoters' security, and we got to the stage, and Jimmy's roadie. A road manager was a guy named Keith Robertson, famous English roadie. He's been the roadie for every big English band. And he looked at me, he goes, come here, you. You're pretty good. Amor, thank you. You're going to help load up Jimmy's amps. So there we are carrying stacks of Marshall amps onto the stage. Which was pretty cool. And I got to watch Hendrix from so the... he knew that you were just faking. I was faking. But he was like, fine, I'll put you to work. He's a good, good fake. <laughs> Appreciate it. So uh, that, I, it's only, quite, I think it's quite a good English accent. It's not bad, is it? Really, it's because it's, it's very like regional, mm. so it sounds less fake. But they all do that sort of side London, London accent. When, but it's also kind of a little bit Liverpool, they, wasn't it? Yeah, Liverpool, so. like that. Well, maybe a little bit. The uh, when the the Beatles was an animated series made in America, they also the Beatles all spoke like, like Cockneys. Like, like, like Cockneys, <laughs> they did. Uh, anyway, that's Billy Joel. Brilliant. Right. Um, uh, people know who Billy Joel is, so we don't need to explain. Cool. Well, I've got a um, song called Simmer that's by Mahalia and featuring Burner Boy. We can find a place for your So nice and simple this week. Simmer by Mahalia. And I can, or do we call it Ma- Mahalia? Mahalia, I think. Uh, Mahalia. But so I, go on, tell me about Mahalia. Um, so she is a singer from, she's only 21, um, and she's been around for quite a while, but she's from Birmingham. Uh, and she, I first got introduced to her, because her earlier stuff is much more kind of like folksy, like pretty um, acoustic type songs. And I went to a festival and saw her there when I didn't really know her songs and stuff and she was brilliant this is when she was probably only 18 or something and she was amazing and she has been and then just recently she's kind of been getting on the rise since then and she's been getting more into like the hip-hop and the R&B side of things and she was talking about um sort of like body positivity and all that kind of stuff like uh, with like Radio 1 and I think that she'll get really really big um but I think she. I think she's just great, really good. Why is she talking about body positivity? She's uh, sort of. She's slightly like, curvier. She's not curvy, not really. No, I, saw, not, I watched the video. Yeah, and I yeah. Thought, oh, she's slightly curvy. Um, Only she, because <laughs> we're always shown girls who are like stick thin. Well, a couple of uh, emails this week, um, mainly from uh, cronies, I have to say. Uh, David Sharrett actually describes himself as a crony. Long-time listener, crony, he said. He said, I've intended to write before with some Generation Gap dynamite material, but alas, it was all a bit moany. He says, and Victor Meldrew, who's a TV character, you know, who was uh, always moaning about stuff. Um, Ruth, congratulations with your A-level results. I'm sure I'm not alone here in podcast land to be pleased you've done so well. Oh, so well thanks. Done. That's Dave Sharrett. Graham Potter sent me a very... Uh, he said, this is for level testing, but... Oh, Dad. It, well, no. Uh, well, I see what you think. Uh, Astronaut 1. Hi, mate. I can't find any milk for my coffee. 
Astronaut 2. In space, no one can hear you scream. No one can hear you scream. No one can hear you scream. It's a line from... Oh, yeah, yeah, no one can hear you scream. In space, no one can hear you scream. Yes, and I thought it might be a little bit involved to start the whole podcast with. But anyway... It's uh, just not that funny. And It's not that funny, Graham. So your child, (laughs) there you go. Uh, So don't dare send us any more emails that aren't that funny. No, Uh, please do, because we don't get enough. (laughs) Hugh Besant, who's also a crony, uh, says, well... Uh, he was talking about, he, he said, your discussion about renting was interesting. Remember said last week? And you said, well, if you're to rent, you're living there. You're not yeah. wasting all the money. Uh, I've rented for 10 years since divorce at all my capital. And it's largely a positive experience. So I'll give you a short pros and cons list in no particular order. One, you don't have to do any DIY if something breaks. You just call the uh, landlord. Two, you know exactly what your outgoings are. None of the nasty surprises of owning property when you need a new boiler or, right. or something like that. Three, if you get bored, you can move. He says, I haven't, and it's a hassle, but it does give you a lot of flexibility, mm-hmm. um, especially if you change jobs, that sort That's of thing. That's a good point, yeah. Uh, four, you can end most cold calls instantly by saying, no, I'm just a tenant. <laughs> uh, but, but, now, but. This, these are the big buts. He says, you can be asked to leave. I love my flat, and it has changed hands twice during my time here, with me staying on as a tenant. But right now, the owner is desperate to sell, so it might go to someone else who wants to live here, and that will be a pain. So you can lose your place. Yeah. Well, there's not the same security. No. Uh, The cost, £760 a month. He's in the Surrey commuter belt for one bed. So I think balancing all that stuff, you're better off owning than... uh, Yeah, I I think my point was just that people do look at renting as like the devil and I don't think it's the devil Well, here's something to uh, watch out for when you go to University, Ruth, and that is Freshman Flush. Have you heard of Freshman Flush? Sounds like a character, doesn't it? Some sort of cartoon or um, sci-fi thing. But Freshman Flush is the feeling when that first maintenance payment pours into a student's bank account, almost begging to be spent. Uh. It's amazing how quickly uh, a few thousand pounds can disappear. So watch it on rent, Mm. bills, food and going out. So university isn't just about learning to live independently, it's about the challenge of managing your finances too. But you've yeah. talked that you're aware of all this, aren't you? Yeah, I think so. It's yeah. just about budgeting and making sure you're not spending more money than you actually yeah. have. The good news about student debt... And nights out, don't spend a lot. No. I was talking to someone and they were like, the main thing you can do on, not, on a night out to avoid spending loads of money is drink beforehand and um, don't buy takeaways, just have a bowl of cereal when you get in. And I was like, that's actually quite a good tip because Mm. you do end up spending like £8 on something that you don't really need. Yeah, just to soak up. Yeah, if you're drunk, you'll buy If you're drunk, you'll just buy a pizza. Yeah, but you don't need to just have a bowl of cereal when you get in. Good. Well, I mean, you do that anyway, more or less, don't you? Yeah, I'm not a massive night out eater. No. Do the odd time, buy a pizza, but. Or buy a pizza before you leave and you can get one for like £1.50. Hmm. Or cheaper. No, <laughs> don't buy a pound. No, a free, like a don't, freezer one. You don't buy a, a freezer pizza for a pound. They're not good ones. The freezer You know pizzas, what, though? I do think the ones that are not... So there's, like, three tiers, isn't there? There's, like, the mm. Pizza Express ones, which are the, like, fancy ones. And then there's... Are you talking about to put in your freezer? To, the ones you buy at the supermarket. Right. The, maybe more, like, the fridge so ones. So pizzas you buy at right. the supermarket. Dad. Okay, there's actually four tiers. So I would say there's the freezer ones, the ones you actually buy in the freezer section, and then there's three separate fridge ones, and those are the the ones we'll go into detail on. So you've got your bottom tier, no, you've got your top tier ones, which are your like 
Pizza Express branded pizzas. Yeah. Those are fancy. Or, or or, also, <clears throat> the Sainsbury's taste the difference. Yes, Tesco finest. I don't know what the Asda fancy Mar- is. Morrison's is the best. The best, yeah. yeah. I, I don't I've know what Asda is because yeah, it's not one close by really. No, because I um, don't like the way Walmart treat their staff, so I never shop at Asda. Right? Is it also if the it's the Sainsbury's in Wakefield was an Asda, you'd probably go there, though, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't you? Probably yeah. Would. <laughs> <laughs> it's a. Well, it's, it's very handy with Asda because Walmart. I think everything you read about Walmart, you know, they are awful, and therefore there's no Asdas near us, so I can quite easily boycott Asda because then. Nowhere near us. Right. Yeah. Then your number two. It's nice to be woke. <laughs> your number two pizza. This yeah. is your second one. Right. So we've got Tesco Finest and... And also like the Pizza Express yeah. branded ones, which I would say are the best ones. Yeah, I don't think they're any better than I think Tesco are the best good. and Sainsbury's Taste the Difference. I disagree. Okay. Or Aldi Deluxe. Those ones are good as well. Uh, well, you know my views on Aldi. I'm not a fan. I know. But, mm-hmm. Number you got your number two ones, which are brand uh, branded pizzas, but the the supermarket brand, but not basics and not um, finest, just the standard brand, which I think are the best quality and value for money combined. Like I think that's the best one. And also sometimes those fancy pizzas, they've got too much on them for cooking in a normal oven. Mm. Like the cheese doesn't melt as well. Um, so I would say those are the best pizzas. The normal brand yeah. um, supermarket ones then you've got in your third tier the kind of ones you'd buy if you were having a party and having lots of people around and you didn't want to spend a lot of money they they in at Sainsbury's they come in a yellow package and they're just they're the really basics. standard basics. like they're basic Sainsbury's yeah. basics or Morrison's or Tesco ev- Essentials tes- oh, Everyday no, Value Waitrose Essentials Tesco Everyday Value no te- it's not te- Tesco Tesco is Everyday Value I thought Asda was Everyday Value I don't know what Asda is because I anyway those are your bottom Astra, ones you know. so I would say you want to go for that middle tier pizza mm. well I would say um, for a pizza pe- you don't want a pizza that costs in a supermarket I do that think they, they, under they, they, about five, they're five quid what yeah, you're well, mental. Even those, even those expensive ones co- don't no, cost five, five quid. About four or five quid. No, that I would say they're three seventy-five tops. Yeah. Well, you're clearly um, well. <laughs> the price is right. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're absolutely well equipped to go to um, uni. Yeah, to go that's to all uni. you need to know, right? Uh, yep. Yeah, so you'll be in pizza mainly. Um, the good news about student debt is that none of it needs to be repaid while at university. The bad mm. news is there may be a lot of it. Uh, oh, it, I worked out how yeah. much I had to earn. It was a disgusting figure. It was about, it was like 50 grand or something ridiculous. What, before you start paying it back? Or? No, 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 that was how much. I was going to earn about 60 grand, I Oh, think. that's how much you have to earn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Many of the poorest students, so this won't be you, uh, leave with £57,000 of debt, according to I'll, the Institute I'll leave, for Fiscal I'll leave with that. Studies. Because I'm doing four years. Oh, you're doing four years? And I'm getting a maintenance loan that's... They shouldn't let the debt put off um, poor students from going to university. Martin Lewis says that. Martin Lewis was like, it needs to be rebranded. It's not a debt, it's a loan. And it's wrong. And politicians discourage... Just by using the word debt. By using the word debt and by talking about the debt as this big scary thing. And Martin Luther, he was really passionate about it. And he was like, you're putting off disadvantaged students from going to university because of the way that you speak about it. And it's mm. completely wrong. But it's quite good that quite a lot of people are now going for apprenticeships. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that's that has good. been a positive effect. Oh, really positive. Of the, of the school, and also know. it's so much more suited to so many people as well. Yeah. Especially if you, if you want to go into a trade, why go to university? There's no point. 
You know, I'm always keen on uh, not just being woke, you know, boycotting Asra and all that stuff, oh, yeah. uh, but also uh, very keen on um, new slang, new ways of speaking. And there's a couple of things you've introduced me to over the years. Uh, ghosting. You told me all ghosting. about ghosting. Um, I heard of a thing the other day called love bombing. Love bombing? What's that? That was when um, it's usually when men do it in a way to then become like manipulative later. Like, I'll look up the exact definition because I don't want to get it wrong. Love bombing is an attempt to influence a person by demonstrations of attention and affection it can be used in different ways and be, can be used for either a positive or negative person um and it's often you know if i think it's more common that men would do it a uh, mm, man would do it to a woman uh, where it's really early on in a relationship and they buy you like a really expensive gift and then the oh so it's not to do with phones it's to do with just no no general. no not yeah it's just general like relationship <clears throat> etiquette and they buy you like really expensive gift really early in the relationship and then if you they do something wrong they'll say oh well remember what i've done for you like that kind mm-hmm. of thing which is obviously really manipulative well let, tell me if you've heard of any of these zombieing have you heard of zombieing oh is that in that like ghosting a bit uh, assuming you can continue where you left off with someone you ghosted uh, for a long time so you ghost someone and then you try and get back with them yeah that's a zombie you know because you when dead, you message them you. i can see why it's called zombie yeah yeah re, re. uh breadcrumbing have you heard of breadcrumbing is that like leaving there must be like leaving little things like li- little instagram stories exactly. and that kind of stuff uh breadcrumbing making sporadic flirtatious gestures uh, whether it's a, a like on instagram or a suggestive text message which is a breadcrumb um every couple of months even though you have no intention of dating seriously so you're doing that's that not nice is it? thing no um benching you heard of benching that must be having a roster of girls that you just switch in and out and put yes, some of them on the bench like benching it's in a football, football game. context yes absolutely regularly texting and calling but never suggesting to meet up unless oh, okay. you need a backup date so somebody's right, yeah. sitting on the bench it's a substitute really mm-hmm. uh, haunting yeah keeping someone on a string yep um, haunting haunting what's um, that? like leaving them for a while and kind of ghosting them and then every once in a while yeah, replying to a story sen- yeah they all make sense these haunting is getting back in they're touch they're just words for things though. yes getting back in touch after a long period of silence in a non-committal way by following them on twitter or watching their snapchat mm. stories stashing well, that's like um, what is orbiting you've heard about the orbiting you, thing you is... You did say that before. Yeah. Yeah. Stashing. Yeah, stashing. Stashing. Nope. So you can introduce these now. Stashing is when you don't... I will be using all of these. It's when you don't introduce them to friends or family uh, and leave no trace of your romance on social media. Instead, you keep the relationship a secret in the same way that you'd stash away old tracksuit bottoms that are too comfortable to get rid of. Uh, so stashing. So you do... You, okay, so in a draw. Yeah. Sidebarring sidebarring so the sidebar on a computer is like where you put notifications yeah. or something like that sidebar on a newspaper piece is the little thing yeah. they put down the side ah a newspaper what is this you speak of yes <laughs> when in the middle of a date uh, you get your phone out and text a friend reply to a whatsapp message etc oh. that's a sidebar i don't like that one as much no. i think some of the other ones better uh, r bombing R bombing. R bombing. Another letter R. It's letting the blue tick show on WhatsApp. Oh, red. To prove you've read their message but not replying. Oh, ho, ho. that's very bad, is it? So this, um, you know, this is. I mean, I don't use. No. no one under the age of twenty-six uses WhatsApp or whatever. Don't they? No. No one under the age of twenty-six uses. No one WhatsApp. under the age of twenty-six uses WhatsApp. Apart from the family WhatsApp. Apart from family. So what are you I using promise you, these if you, days, if you're, you're using. 
Snapchat, Instagram. Snapchat, Instagram. Not I use not Twitter, Twitter, but not chat people. No. Snapchat and Twitter Instagram. Twitter to raise your profile in a media yeah, yeah. It's my, it's my um, professional, in a professional <laughs> capacity. Yeah. Well, Follow me, at Ruth Kellner 1. <laughs> Ruth Kellner 1, at Ruth Kellner 1. Follow her. She's on uh, on Twitter. I thought you didn't like all that. Um, just finish no, with, you know, uh, no. finish, before we go into your meme, you have a meme this week. Yes. Uh, well, before we go into your meme, Ooh. a little quiz. Um, oh, okay. I like a quiz. Yeah. Well, it's a quiz about, about Hollywood. Uh, apparently, in Hollywood these days, the uh, key way to get a part is to have a, a vast number of followers on social media. Mm. Uh, Beyonce, Taylor Swift and Rihanna have all been cast in some of Hollywood's uh, biggest movies, despite having no formal training as actors. Uh, last year, Rihanna turned up in the Ocean's 8 reboot. Pretty soon we'll see Beyonce as uh, Nala in the remake of The Lion yes. King. That well, that's happened now. I've and, still not seen it. Uh, and Taylor Swift has been cast in the Cats film. You, know, you said you were excited yes. about seeing it. It's an animation film, isn't it, of Cats? And the reason for that is that uh, on each uh, on Instagram alone, each of them has a larger fan base than the entire UK population. Wow. So that's six, over 60 million. So I'm going to go between these people and tell me who of these four people you think has the most Instagram followers. Okay. Right? Taylor Swift. Okay. Beyonce. Selena Gomez. And Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I think I, I know this. Go on then. I think it's Selena Gomez. Not that. I think Selena Go- Gomez has the most ever on the whole Spot of Instagram. On 152 million. Yeah, she's got the most out of three times the population of the UK. Yeah. She has the most Instagram followers in the world. Yeah, she does. Um, well, between Dwayne, let's do. T- all right, I'll go further down. Between Ellen DeGeneres and Rihanna, who do you oh, think Rihanna. would have the most Instagram followers? Rihanna, I think. Or the more Instagram followers. No, Ellen DeGeneres has huh. 74 million. Uh, Rihanna has 73 million. Wow. Yep. Did so that's... let's go to Twitter now, see how okay. they're all doing on Twitter. Um, is Selena Gomez still top on no. Twitter? So who has the most Twitter followers in the world? Oh, I... Do you want to give you a choice of Yeah, people? you can have to give me a choice because I really don't know. Right. The most Twitter followers in the world, it's between Jennifer Lopez, Taylor Swift... Miley Cyrus and Oprah Winfrey. Oh, that's really hard. So I don't think it's Jennifer Lopez. No. Because she's just not famous enough. Mm-hmm. I think Taylor Swift will have a lot. But I think also think... I don't think it's Oprah. And then... But Miley Cyrus, she'll have a lot as well. And she tweets a lot. I'm going to go Miley Cyrus. No, it's Rihanna. Uh, you didn't give me an option of Rihanna, though. I did not. <laughs> It's hard, to, it's hard to get if it's not a choice. <laughs> right. My apologies. Um, all right, then, we'll do another a quick one, then. This okay. is the last one. It's a very quick one. Who has the most Twitter followers, Harry Styles or Oprah Winfrey? Harry Styles. No. Oh. Uh, Oprah Winfrey... Has, I knew that. I don't know why I said Harry Styles. <laughs> Oprah Winfrey has 42 million. Still a lot of Twitter followers. Mm-hmm. Harry Styles has 33 million. He's still doing well. Yes. And I, it's okay. I have 28,000. But I'm You're very close, close to 29,000, are you? Close to 29,000. Meme of the week. Yep. Yeah, um, this is just a tweet. I just thought it was quite funny. Um, the slug and lettuce bar is just Weatherspoons for dickheads. 
that's not bad. That's very similar to... Just that, it's just good. Very similar to that line about the orange lemonade that was in After Hours. That oh, San Pellegrino. Yeah. yeah, it's just Fanta for dickheads. Yeah, San Pellegrino, just Fanta for dickheads. Yeah, that was Which, a really good... That was the best line in that whole series. Not one of my lines. Oh. I, did, I did play Barry B in that series. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the call. Uh, it was, the, I thought it was really good. Oh, I'm surprised it, it didn't... It didn't get an, uh, just not, not enough people watched it, I don't think. But no. it was really... We're we're talking about After Hours, uh, Craig Cash's uh, sitcom on Sky Yeah, young people, sort of Mm. running around. It was about five years ago, was it, I suppose? Um, Yeah, maybe not quite as long as that, but yeah. yeah. I think that brings us to a close. I was about to say the very same thing. That's it for this week. If you want to get in touch with us, and we do like to get the emails, not just from my cronies, but anybody who wants to send us an email, we'd love to get it. It's Martin and Ruth Podcast, obviously all one word, Martin and Ruth Podcast at gmail.com. Martin and Ruth Podcast at gmail.com. And you can also go on the Spotify, uh, go on Spotify to not only listen to the podcast, but you can also listen to the songs from this week in full and all the others on our Spotify playlist. And we are at Ruthie Me and my dad or martin and ruth either of those searches and you'll find it